Choice is brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hello, it's noon on the first Monday of the month, and so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, right here in Arscape in Cape Town. I'm Gori Bose Taylor. And I'm Matabataba. How are you, Gori? Well, looking forward to <laughs> a lot in the program. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what's coming up. Okay, this happy hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, brings us great ideas for giving and getting. Rodney Trudgeon falls hook, line and sinker for Mike Bruton's The Fishy Smiths, the biographies of JLB and Margaret Smith. Cindy Moritz much enjoyed Vanessa Raffaele's Beach Umbrella Thriller Plus One, while Peter Soule takes on two non-fiction books on opposite poles of the political spectrum, Across Boundaries, a memoir by the brilliant Ton Fosru, Nasenala Pair's boss, and Truth, Lies and Alibis, a Winnie Mandela story by Fred Bridgeland. It was World Mental Health Day last month. Vanessa Levenstein chats to Maura Fisher, author of what is it, the, the enumerations, a beguiling and helpful book on the effects of mental conditions on a family. Philippa Schaefitz is enthusiastic about new trends, new tastes in the South African vegan cookbook where food is plant-based using no animal products. And we've a pre-recorded chat with Zimbabwean writer Jill Baker about the first in her sizzling Zambezi trilogy, The Horns, also with a giveaway copy in today's competition. Finally, Leslie Beek speaks of the joys and delights of non-fiction reading for young readers. Andrew Marshbanks, good gifting and getting there. Thank you, Gary. The good news, as we've all heard and seen, is that books do influence events. We saw that with The President's Keepers, and now we're seeing it with the, the Bird Island book because I believe the police are opening an investigation into everything surrounding Bird Island, and it'll be very interesting to see if something does come up or, and if, it, if it's proved correct. It was an amazing book. I read it. Gary read it. I think we've all thought that this was a, a great book to have and to read. And now we see things are moving. The bureaucracy has been prodded into action, which is great. Well, I'm going to start with another local book, a book that's just come out, a new one from Mike Nichol. Mike is a brilliant writer, and he writes an excellent series of thrillers, and the latest one is called Sleeper. Now, this is a political thriller, spy thriller, mixed up with ISIS, atomic weapons, all this sort of stuff set in Cape Town, and it's his private eye, Fish Pescado, it's marvelous. All his books are marvelous. You can read all of them. It is, I think it's the third one in the Fish Pescado series, but you don't have to read them in order. He's always, always excellent. That's Mike Nichol, and the book is called Sleeper. Another person who also writes an extremely good thriller is uh, Robert Galbraith. Now, you know Robert Galbraith is the J.K. Rowlings, the author of Harry Potter, and she does her thriller writers under the name of Robert Galbraith. Her new one is called Lethal White, and it's all the same people. It's Cormorant Strike, uh, his sidekick, and um, the love affair that happens doesn't happen. The marriage, will it happen, not happen? So you're caught up with all of those things, plus an extremely good detective story. I love him and her. And I think that the, the books are always worth reading. And anyone for book club, for a read over the weekend, it's quite a hefty term, but it's very good. Number one bestseller in the UK. So it's Robert Galbraith, Lethal White. Then another author who's brought out for Christmas is Jodie Pico. Now, she is extremely famous in South Africa because she comes out here often. She started coming out about 10 years ago, and she had huge success with the sisters and various other books like that. 
Every book she brings out is interesting, beautifully written, well-planned. She takes something that's happening, takes an issue, like in this one, it's an abortion. And uh, she writes a novel about it, about people who are affected by it, people who want to defend it, people who are caught in the whole situation. And you get to know the family, you get to know the issues, plus you are entertained. She is a very good author. That's Jody Pico, A Spark of Light. It says there's a shout out on the front here. It is hard to exaggerate how well Pico writes. And that is very true from the Financial Times. Every book you're able to pick up, read quite happily, and you come away feeling you've learned something. And another famous author just brought out another book for Christmas. This is Anne Tyler. I think everyone must have read some Anne Tyler, from The Accidental Tourist to uh, her last one, which is A Spool of Blue. They are all extremely good. Anne Tyler is famous for family dramas. She really gets to the meat of the family through a very quiet way she has of describing everything, putting people in the situations, finding out how they tick and how they work. It's a very simple method. I mean, there's a lot of construction underneath. She writes beautifully, and her books are always fascinating, easy reading, and you feel very satisfied after it. I think anyone who reads Antali will love her new one, and it's called Clock Dance, and... Uh, it's yet again one of her big smash hits. And the final book I'm doing um, is a nonfiction from David Attenborough. Now, David Attenborough, they re-released uh, a first set of his biographies, his early bi- autobiographies, last year. And it was a very big smash hit at Christmas. Now, they've carried on with this. Um, it's called Journeys to the Other Side of the World, David Attenborough, Further Adventures of a young naturalist. He writes so well. It's been re-edited to cut out some stuff that may not be relevant now. It's the famous thing of where he's on Tonga, those guys who dive off the towers with the vines holding them down until they get, and they just miss the ground. I remember seeing that on TV when I was young. It was absolutely shattering. And the bird of paradise and all that sort of stuff. It is brilliant. And here he's collecting for the London Zoo. And how do things go? They are really excellent. And David Attenborough writes beautifully about everything that happens, the sorrows, the killing, the collection of the wildlife. And I think that David Attenborough is a person who should be celebrated. His TV programs are always outstanding. We love him. Journeys to the Other Side of the World, David Attenborough, Further Adventures of a Young Naturalist. And that's 330 Rand. That's it for today. Happy reading. Rodney Trojan, Hook, Line and Sinker. An interesting book has just been released by Penguin Random House, South Africa. It's called The Fishy Smiths, a biography of JLB and Margaret Smith by Mike Bruton. And the discovery of the modern-day steelacanth will forever be linked with the name of JLB Smith, an intense, irascible, eccentric man. JLB, as he was widely known, and his long-suffering wife, Margaret, were both remarkable South African scientists who changed the course of the biological sciences. Best known for their research on the coelacanth, they also contributed in many other ways to the scientific study of fishes and related fields. That's ichthyology. And this is the first comprehensive biography about JLB and Margaret Smith. And with me in the studio today is the author, Mike Bruton. Mike, apart from the Smiths and their thing with the coelacanths, it seems to me that you as well are absolutely besotted with the coelacanth. Am I allowed to say something like that? (laughs) I think you're probably right, Rodney. I was born, educated in East London, so I was exposed to the coelacanth very early on. I met Dr. Courtney Latimer, the curator of the East London Museum, as a youth, and I became involved in the museum. And then I went to Rhodes, studied ichthyology, did my MSc and PhD in the subject. But I was, at that time, I was mainly working on freshwater fishes, but I always kept my eye on the coelacanth. (laughs) And you've written quite a bit on the coelacanth. 
coelacanth, haven't you? Yes, late last year I published the annotated old forelegs, the updated story of the coelacanth. And the aim of that was to keep the, the story of old forelegs and the book Old Forelegs alive because I think it's a wonderfully inspiring tale and new generations need to know about it. So what angle did you take for this biography? Because it's, it's sort of potentially a huge subject, isn't it, with these two clearly quite eccentric people but very dedicated mm. as well. Well I tried to take a scientific approach to this instead of just a descriptive biography I tried to look at cause and effect as one would in a scientific investigation I must admit some information was lacking on JLB Smith's early childhood but I tried to find out what made them what they are and also to look at them warts and all because everyone has their faults and uh, they have obstacles to overcome but I think that makes one admire them even more for what they did achieve despite those shortcomings. Mm -hmm. And you said a scientific approach but I mean it does not detract the average reader does it it's from what i've seen of the book so far and the bits mm. i've read mm. it's certainly accessible in a thoroughly interesting way well i hope so we've prepared a book that is very readable it's in non-technical language and the whole idea is to make people not part of the scientific community aware of the value of science the excitement of science how much of an adventure it is because in my opinion science is under threat at the moment uh, with social media and, and other ways of communicating fringe groups which are anti-science and, and pseudoscience are threatening uh, science and, and questioning its value. That's an interesting angle and that was a whole nother discussion Mike yes. but just very briefly one would have thought that with today's age of technology and all that it would be a heyday for science. Yes. You're saying actually it's under threat. Yes, it, it is an odd oh. conundrum mm. uh, in that science uh, has never been more important and more known than it is now, yet it is under threat. And, and I believe by telling the stories of scientists, this is a great way of communicating the value of science to the general public. Had you met, this might be a silly question, had you met the Smiths? Yes, I knew J.L.B. Smith for about two years, just before he died. I was a first and second year student at Rhodes. But I knew Margaret very well. I worked with her for over 20 years, and I took over from her as director of the J.L.B. Smith Institute of Ichthyology, as it was known then. So I got to know her very well, and I became interested in their, their history. <laughs> And was he really you, intense, irascible, eccentric? I mean, they sound as though they were quite a couple. Yes, they were. Com I call them the yin-yang couple because they were <laughs> complementary. Uh, they had different strengths. He was a man maniacally focused and, and lean and mean and quite rude, but he got the job done. And she was the people person, the networker, the one who, you know, in the eye of the storm always calmed things down. Mm -hmm. But what is remarkable is how she changed her personality to suit his needs because she was a, a happy, uh, social, music-loving person uh, when she met him as a student. He was 19 years older than her and very severe in temperament. And she suppressed all, all her, you know, her joyousness, as it were. <laughs> and then when he died in, in, uh, in uh, January 1968, she kind of resumed her original personality and became re-involved in music and song and choirs, etc. Is she still alive? No, she died in 1987. Oh. Okay, so she outlived him by quite a bit. Yes, to enjoy that him by nineteen years. Yeah. And their work, you know, we th we're thinking so much at the moment of South Africa and the coast here, where the coelacanth was discovered. Mm. Is this of international interest as well? I presume it must be hugely interesting to international. I believe scientists. so. The discovery of the coelacanth is still regarded as one of the great biological discoveries of the twentieth century, and the work they did in the Western Indian Ocean at the East African coast is definitely of international importance. Because Smith predicted that the first one caught off East London was a stray from the tropics to the north and pursued his work in fishes. And then look what happened. I mean, yes. literally we can say the rest is history. That's right. So thanks, Mike. It's, it must have been a great joy to write it as well. And it's beautifully illustrated with interesting photographs which you've clearly sourced mm. from all sorts of places. It's called The Fishy Smiths. It's by Mike Bruton. It's a biography of JLB and Margaret Smith and it's published by Penguin. Mike Bruton, thank you. Thank you so much.
Cavatina from the Deer Hunter, played by James Grace. It's so good, that James Grace. Very. Sidney Moritz, always good to have a thriller under your beach umbrella. Plus One is Vanessa Raffaele writing what she knows, as all first-time authors are encouraged to do when venturing into the great literary unknown. Her main character, Lisa Lassiter, is a young South African magazine editor in London, which Vanessa was too for some years in the 80s where she rubbed shoulders with some very rich and famous people. The character also works for a fashion-y magazine which she hardly loves and her publisher is a most unsavory, advertising sales-driven character. The crux is that Lisa is the plus one or go-to companion of Hollywood up-and-coming celebrity Claudia Hemingway, who creates the drama around which the story unfolds. Through her writing, Vanessa has managed to take you there, whether it's grungy 80s London or a luxury yacht in the waters of Mykonos or right here in Cape Town, and presumably Plettenberg Bay, which Vanessa describes without naming. Vanessa is self deprecating, citing some 16 rewrites of this, her first manuscript, and her tendency to more likely identify with the warthog in her debut children's book, Princess Pincushion, than with Lisa Lassiter. 
Ultimately, she produced a fast-paced page-turner that has been described as compelling, a bit dark but written with a light touch. She also managed to preempt the prevalence of what the Me Too movement stands for in that she started writing this story, which resolves around an unreported and unsolved rape, years before the hashtag went viral and women began speaking out about abuse of power. That it was published now is fortunate. The story in a nutshell, and without giving anything away, is that South African Lisa is living and working in London when her actress and celebrity friend Claudia Hemingway invites her along for a weekend on a billionaire's yacht off the coast of Mykonos. Not only would they fly there in a private jet, but they would hobnob with VIP guests, including a super-famous Hollywood producer. There's also an electric tension between Lisa and Claudia's brother Liam, who is fiercely protective of his sister. Then someone dies. The crowd leaves the scene of a crime that is never quite resolved. However, years later, someone speaks out. By then, Lisa has moved on, but finds herself drawn back into a world she thought she would rather forget. The action takes place between London, Cape Town and Los Angeles, a sure recipe for fun, but one that's tempered by a thought-provoking thread that strikes a more serious note. And the end is unpredictable. So I'll leave you with that and suggest you enjoy this one as you relax under a beach umbrella. Peter, so no beach umbrella for you, but two non-fiction books from opposite ends of the political spectrum. I have two books this month. Both deal with opposite poles of the political centre. The first is Across Boundaries, published by Jonathan Ball, a memoir of Tom Foslu, who spent 59 years working for Nationale Paris, rising from cub reporter to managing director and chairman of the board. Under his leadership and that of Chris Becker, Naspers evolved from a print group into a media giant with investments across the world, particularly in China. Early in his career, he was sent to Parliament where he worked as a parliamentary correspondent until he was appointed editor of the newly established Johannesburg Afrikaans Daily, Built. In 1970, he was awarded a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard University. While in the United States, he realized apartheid was unsustainable and spent the rest of his career working to increase the space between Naspers and the then-governing party. In 1983, he was appointed managing director of the group with the assistance of Kurs Becker and other media companies who were all losing advertising to television. He established Mnet, the first pay television network. He subsequently bought out the other companies, making Mnet wholly owned by Naspers. This was during the emerging digital era, which offered many opportunities, eagerly snapped up by Fosloo and Becker, making Naspers bigger in scope and reach until it was the largest company to be quoted on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Fosloo believed it was their newspapers that did the groundwork, which smoothed the way for the acceptance of the new South Africa by Afrikaans-speaking people. This view was endorsed by Nelson Mandela, the first democratically elected president who wrote some of the best and most important reporting and commentary in the South African media is to be found in Afrikaans newspapers. As a leader, Ton Fosloo played a very important role in achieving that. Across Boundaries by Ton Fosloo is an interesting read and is recommended especially for those with an interest in current South African history. My second book is Truth, Lies and Alibis, a Winnie Mandela story by Fred Bridgeland, published by Tafelberg. Bridgeland is a veteran correspondent who covered South Africa for UK papers at the time and reminds us of some of the explosive moments of the late 80s. The book deals with the murder of 14-year-old Stompy Sepe over the weekend of Thursday the 29th of December 1988 to Monday the 2nd of January 1989 and the murder of Winnie's physician Dr. Abu Baker Asfat some weeks later. Winnie and members of her football club were held up in her house in Deepkloof Extension Soweto when she decided to kidnap Stompy 
and some of the other youngsters in hiding from the authorities in the manse of Methodist minister Paul Verane, who often gave youngsters shelter while they arranged to move out of the country and seek military training from the ANC in exile. Winnie was on a mission to smear Verane, branding him a homosexual who had sex with the boys he gave shelter to. Winnie dispatched her loyal assistant Jerry Richardson and a number of the members of the football club to kidnap Stompy and some of his friends. They returned to Winnie's house in Winnie's minibus with the captured individuals and took them to one of the shacks in the backyard and started beating them up. Stompy was lifted high in the air and dropped onto the concrete floor, sometimes onto his head. His head was badly swollen, and Winnie called Dr. Asfat, who was most disturbed by the boy's condition. Winnie told him the boy had been raped by Verane and asked Asfat for a certificate confirming this. Asfat refused, thus sealing his fate, as he was murdered in his surgery by two of the football club members some weeks later. Stompy died over that weekend, and Winnie had his body dumped in the felt outside Soweto. All evidence pointed to Winnie, who cooked up an alibi that she could not be guilty, as she was in Bromfort that weekend. All the boys were told to confirm this, which they did, as they were petrified of Winnie. The book deals with various court cases and the lies told to protect Winnie and her evidence to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. At the TRC, some of the boys broke down and admitted they perjured themselves to protect her. The book deals in detail with the various cases. Winnie found guilty and sentenced to six years in prison, which was set aside on appeal. Some will say this was done as the negotiations between the government and the ANC were at a delicate stage. This is a very interesting read and is also recommended. Bing bong ball down a mountain stream Like paper riding in the breeze Like strolling in the dark through streets you know People can feel free as these People being what they please People being easy Letting go Letting go Letting go Back of the moon, boys, back of the moon, boys Top she been in Joba, gives the back of the moon The moon is where the folks let go Back of the moon bus, back of the moon bus Right in front is the back of the moon Back of the moon bus, back of the moon bus Right behind the shanties is the back of the moon Behind all the shanks boys, they built for the back bus Right behind is the back of the moon Though the floor starts shaking when the place Breaking and glass is cracked The night is in front The day's left behind The back of the moon is where the folks unwind Back of the moon bus, back of the moon bus Behind the shacks is the back of the moon Come on, Lucky <laughs> Let's go Back of the moon bus, back of the moon bus Where the man feels free 
Back of the Moon uh, from King Kong, sung by Miriam Makeba. And thank you, Rick Everett, for that one. The music has been compiled, as always, by Rick Everett. Corey. And as always, get you going. I mean, you were really moving to that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Vanessa Levenstein. The impact of mental health problems on a family. The Enumerations by Moira Fisher is the story about a 17-year-old boy, Noah, who suffers from obsessive-compulsive disorder. Yet as we soon discover, it's not only Noah who suffers as a result of his condition, but his family as well. Joining us on Fine Music Radio's Book Choice is author Moira Fisher. What was your impetus for writing this book? Well, I didn't ever set out to write a book about a person with OCD. What happened was, when I was writing Bird's Eye, my first novel, I had two other unfinished novels sitting, waiting. And in one of them, there was a woman who worked in a bookshop. She had a brother who had some form of condition. I didn't even know what it was. And I thought, well, I'd better explore him to find out why she was going to see him and, and was so worried about him. And Noah stepped into the story in a much younger version of the man in the bookstore. And he took over the story. So the 17-year-old boy decided that his sister could hang around for a bit longer and I could tell his story instead. Sounds like he knocked on your front door. He did, he did. He didn't even come in slantwise. <laughs> Enumerate refers to counting an order. How does Noah use numbers to contain his world? For Noah, it's very much a safety thing. He's very worried. He's, he's worried about his family. He's worried about their safety. He needs something to protect them and to keep a sense of order in a world that he feels is completely out of control. And fear is the dominating factor for him, that if he doesn't get things absolutely right and absolutely perfect and count and, as we say, enumerate things, then something terrible, terrible, terrible is going to happen. And attached to that is this terribly dark presence inside his head that pulls him up every time he gets something wrong. And, of course, if he gets something wrong, he has to start all over again. There's a whole series of things he has to go through. And if he doesn't get them absolutely right, then things, as far as he's concerned, and he knows he's not being rational, things will literally fall apart, not only for him but for his family as well. So it's fighting his demons. Yeah, and fighting fighting the darkness, fighting, fighting fear. I think that's one of the big things connected to... To OCD, and I'm not an expert on this, yeah. but I, I did a huge amount of reading and I, I checked with people in the field who are experts in the field. How did your research influence the narrative? You know, when I, when I write, I tend to free write, so every, the story comes out very quickly. But with Noah and his family, I was very aware of the fact that research was essential. And I went into researching OCD very deeply. I was very lucky in as much as experts in the field read the book for me and told me that I'd got Noah's symptomology correct, which was a great relief. But also, I felt deeply that I couldn't present somebody like Noah without being very respectful to him, to other people who battle with OCD, and to making sure that as much as I could as a layperson, that I presented him as accurately, as respectfully, as... as Responsibly. Res yes, responsibly. That's a good word. As responsibly as possible. So research was a huge sideline to writing the story. The two interwove the whole way through the writing of the book. And, you know, a lot of us say we're OCD and we throw the term around quite casually. But the thing that dominates is the fear attached to if you don't get it right, something terrible, terrible is going to happen. As is so true of all families, we all have roles to play, but perhaps this is even more highlighted in a family with a child with special needs, be they physical or emotional. How do the different roles play out in Noah's family? You know, Noah, as I say, arrived as Noah, and then, of course, he came with a sister and, and a mom and a dad, and each of them seemed to fall into a fairly well-defined role. Maddie, his younger sister sees herself as being Noah's protector. She also feels very worried about the fact that her parents have enough on their plates already, so she needs to be the good, the good child. So she falls into that slot, and it becomes her job to maintain that position. Then Kate, Noah's mum, is concerned with holding it all together and and also protecting her son and, and trying to make things better for mm -hmm. him, as, as mothers want to do. And his dad... Dominic, 
whom one would imagine would step forward and step up and share the problems and the burdens and the worries and all the rest of it with Kate as as things get closer and closer to him so he retreats further and further from his son and his behavior is worrying for the reader I hope <laughs> it was worrying and it was fascinating because yeah, it was yeah. so unpredictable yeah, and I'm not yeah. going to give anything away yeah. but at no stage of the book yeah. till the very end did I really realize what yeah. was happening yeah. it was absolutely brilliant the way you brought in his journey and his, his story the Dickensian children's home that Gabriel grew up in is sharply contrasted with the holistic treatment centre that Noah attends. As a society, do you think we're as good as our income or do you think we've really progressed? Oh, I hope we've progressed. Yeah. I really do. But I do think that income st- still plays a huge role in determining the quality of care that we receive. But having said that, state care can be fantastic. Okay. But if you if you come from a family like Noah's, which is very well-to-do, and once again, that's how he arrived, you do get the best of everything, not not just in terms of treatment, but in terms of accommodation, in terms of comfort, in terms of not having to wait to be treated in terms of being your condition being recognized by experts. So Noah's on the winning side, really, as far as that is concerned. But that isn't to say that there aren't brilliant practitioners in the field of, of state care, not just in South Africa, but, but generally are concerned. And it was very clear from the book that mental illness doesn't discriminate. No. Thank you so much for joining us. All the very best with the enumerations, which was really a gripping, moving, and I could not put down this book. So good to hear. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Philippa Schaefitz. Philippa, new trends, new tastes in your vegan cookbook? The South African Vegan Cookbook by Leah Z. Ruder, and it's published by Human and Rousseau. A vegan diet is plant-based, using and containing no animal products. Meat, fish, eggs, and dairy are replaced with plant-based foods such as nuts, grains, beans, legumes, and vegetables. It's obviously a challenging way of eating, and a cookbook full of suitable, delicious, easy-to-make recipes is a godsend. This is the first South African one. Attractively packaged, bright and light, with recipes that take you from great breakfast ideas through to fine dining. Lovely smoothies, a tropical oats bowl with coconut milk, dried banana, canned granadilla pulp and fresh pineapple. A chickpea omelette, chickpea flour and almond milk with a veggie filling and cashew cream sauce. It's flavoured with kala namik, a black Indian salt that tastes like boiled eggs. A tofu scramble, smashed beans and creamy avo toast that's great for brunch. For dinner, there are the prettiest Vietnamese-style rainbow rolls with marinated tofu, a pasta bake with broccoli, butternut, and sun-dried tomatoes. A lover of pasta, Leozette prefers protein-packed pasta, red lentil, and chickpea. Tahini is used often, in hummus, the classic, and a roasted red pepper one, in a dressing from multigrain salad. There are pestos, sun-dried tomato, Pea, sweet and creamy basil pesto, plenty of salads, substantial enough for a main course. Lots of fresh herbs, but dried herbs are used too, even in a risotto, and commercial seasonings and stock powders. A green goddess Buddha bowl is fresh and green, basil pesto, steamed broccoli, fresh zucchini noodles, baby spinach, avocado, along with quinoa. So-called chicken dishes are made with the Fry Family Food Company's chicken-style strips, chicken-style salad cups, oriental stir-fry with crispy chicken and satay sauce, a handsome baked chicken and mushroom pie, another cleverly made on the braai, a sweet and sour chicken and mushroom braai pie secured in a grid is cooked over a very low heat until golden and crispy. Soya mince is used for a curry, brown lentils in a spag bowl. Great snacks, crispy roasted chickpeas, crunchy kale chips, spicy tandoori cauliflower bites, crispy baked tofu, cheesy nachos with an ingenious sour cream topping made with soaked raw cashews and sunflower seeds. No shortage of sweet treats. 
a whole chapter. It's tea time. Sweetened with sugar, maple or grave syrup. Honey is not allowed. No butter, obviously. Margarine instead. There's a fabulous fruitcake. Hoppy's decadent chocolate and coconut tart. A wholesome Brittany Barley's gluten-free banana bread. For after dinner, an amazing meringue made with a brine of a can of chickpeas. For a late-night treat, almond and peanut butter date balls. The author, Leazette Ruder, like all seriously committed vegans, goes beyond plant-based diet. All animal-derived or animal-tested products are eliminated, from household or personal care products to animal-based materials, leather and fur, wool and silk. In her concern to make a difference to the lives of farm animals, the author began working as campaign manager at Humane Society International, one of the world's biggest animal protection organizations. She also marketed Green Monday SA, a movement encouraging South Africans to eat green on Mondays, a healthy option that's good for helping save animal lives. And there's more recent bracing news for the animals that we abuse. Millennials are moving away from fur. Los Angeles is the biggest city so far to have banned the sale of any fur, anything with fur on it, and tip-top designers ethically aware of animal abuse include Burberry, Versace, Vivian Westwood, Calvin Klein, Tommy Hilfiger, Gucci and Armani. No furs on any of them. Now, here's a bracing pre-record with Jill Baker, Zimbabwean author. Jill Baker, we're going to chat about the horns. It's the first in your trilogy, your Zambezi trilogy, a lot of work in that. You were born in Zimbabwe, where you've spent 20 years in radio and television there. So actually, Jill, you're going to do all the talking today. And you're now living in Australia with your own radio station or still on radio. But the Zambezi is in your blood. Would you call The Horns an historical novel? Yes, definitely a historical novel. It's um, The skeleton is absolute history from all its vagaries and its misconceptions and all the vested interests of that history. But the fiction bounces along the top in the shape of these four characters. I mean, that's a link between past and present, isn't it? It's the father educating his children by telling them the history. It all started because my father was in African education and in one of the first Rhodesian schools for Africans in Cholocho, Nyamantlovo, which is down in the the Matabili land. So I grew up with my best friends with three African boys and they assumed such different careers. One of them ended up as number two in Joshua and Komo's military wing, Zipra, The other one actually negotiated to become Deputy Prime Minister in Ian Smith's government. So you couldn't have had a greater divergence than those two. Then there was me as a sort of token white kid, and Prune, who was the result of an anguishing rape. His mother died in childbirth. He was tremendously premature, adopted by the Scottish nurse at the clinic, and brought up by the orderly there as a Matabili boy. So... The four of us really could tell the whole story of Zimbabwe. But the bits that were missing, Gauri, were what we were not taught at school. What about Matabili kings? Who were they? What sort of people were they? You know, how did they manage to trek through from the Khluklue Game Reserve with 20,000 people right through the northern Transvaal, creating all that Mfekane there, killing everything in their path, but landing up in Bulawayo? What extraordinary leadership but then what extraordinary savagery the only disciplining force that he knew and so it was an explanation and an exploration of who these guys were what made them tick why was he so utterly fascinated by Robert Moffat the missionary little old English missionary out there to do his bit to preach Jesus to the African people Why would Mzilikasi have been so intrigued by him? But he was. He demanded his presence. And a lot of what I've used have been wonderful quotes from Moffat's regular diaries back to the London Missionary Society. His impressions of Mzilikasi 
and his description of Wenham Zilikatsi said, bring him here virtually. And he went out knowing the savagery, having seen the results of these hundreds of people who'd been within an inch of their lives, coming to the mission at Kuruman. And out he went himself with two Tswana drivers to meet Mzilikatsi at his capital. Wow! <laughs> that took a bit of courage. When he got there, 800 warriors round in a circle as they got there. And as they moved through the entrance, 200 closed behind them. Scary! And then out comes the king, and he's utterly fascinated by the wagons. And he says, Why does the little front wheel keep up with the big back wheel? And why has it got iron round it? Fabulous. So you suddenly understand the man for who he is. A brilliant man. Absolutely. He could never have managed it otherwise. His son, Lobungula, as well, never wanted to be king. Was very happy hunting in Missouri with Salu and various other people. Baden-Powell didn't want to be king. And we learnt none of that. But the point really came home to me when one day Prune said to me when he was writing his junior certificate, the JC, why am I, for my history, teaching about Robert Clive of India and not about our kings? And I thought, well, there's your starting point. Got to be. And what was the impact from there? And colonialism, and how did that work? And how did the colonials handle the kings? How did they interact with them? Did the kings hate them? Did they work with them? Did they accept them? So it's been an interesting journey. Well, the other quote that you give is from Rhodes's will, isn't it, when he willed Lobangulu land and cattle, Khrutbum, Khrutbum, yes, he willed right. it all to him. Did you ever find out whether Khrutbum got that, or was that a mystery? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, the, the fiction is for me to know and for you, the reader, to, to try and guess. But Khrutbum is an extraordinary character. I mean, I... I had never heard of him, and but his name kept popping up, just in little bits of the research, that who is this guy? And eventually you realise that his one absolute hatred was the Matabili. He was going to do anything to get even with the Matabili, even joining the missionaries in order to get there. So nobody knows who he was. He's been described as a finger, a closer. Nobody knew. But he used to dress like a Matabili, with all the correct regalia, with all the beads, with everything else, he would mingle among the Matabili and then go back and report to the Fortrekkers, to Rhodes himself, to the missionaries. And then ultimately, he was the one who arranged the big Indaba in 1896, when Rhodes said, we can't go on like this, this is ridiculous, too many people being killed, we must talk to the chiefs. So, Khritbum talked to the chiefs. We were talking to Jill Baker, and this is only the first book in the trilogy, in the Zambezi trilogy. Jill, I don't know, it's called The Horns, and I don't know how we're going to wait for the next two. It may be whether I last as long. <laughs> Leslie Beak. I'm a non-fiction girl myself. There's nothing better than embarking on some heavy volume on something I know nothing much about, but am interested in. Children, I find, are not much different, but you have to take it carefully. The right nonfiction, pitched at the right level, is a simple way to catch a child's attention and get them permanently hooked on books and reading. Is one allowed these days to say, particularly with boys? Well, allowed or not, it's true. And we've seen it time and time again at workshops to encourage an interest in opening books and reading the contents, particularly with boys. We begin with a story on the general theme to catch their attention. But when it comes to actual reading themselves, actually moving the eyes from left to right, and sometimes up and down a bit, non-fiction comes into its own. But how to source non-fiction that is really exciting, well-illustrated, and attention-grabbing? There is quality stuff out there, and any visit to a good bookshop will demonstrate. Here are some tips. Look for something up-to-date. Check that the language is appropriate for the age of child you're interested in. Look at the length. Is it intimidating? Will your candidate reader persevere? Check out the illustrations. They are just as important as the words. National Geographic knows this. A series to look out for now in the bookshops is In Focus, 
published by Kingfisher, an imprint of Milan Children's Books. I have two to hand, Intelligent Animals and Galapagos Islands, and I was really sorry when I'd finished them and there weren't any more on the desk. By Camilla de la Bayer and Clive Gifford, respectively, these books are truly fascinating, and the picture research is, well, picture-perfect. Even better, they have none of those irritating did-you-know boxes so beloved of non-fiction writers and magazine editors. Rather more exciting titles like Violent Volcanoes, Get Answers to Your Questions give a bit more excitement to acquiring knowledge. These books are real page-turners, and there are ten of them to look out for. Highly recommended. Locally, but you are unlikely to find them in bookshops, Cambridge University Press Africa Division published an outstanding series of supplementary readers in 2009 and 2010. With 350 readers at seven reading levels, half of them non-fiction, you would be hard put to find a better choice at a reasonable price. Google their catalogue to order. They are excellent, especially for boys. I reviewed Galapagos Island by Clive Gifford and Intelligent Animals by Camilla de la Bedorie, both published in 2018 by Kingfisher, an imprint of Millen Children's Books. I also mentioned the excellent Rainbow Readers series published by Cambridge University Press in South Africa in 2009 and 2010. And there we are. That's it then. And thank you for being with us. It was great for us to have you. Thank you to Rick Everett, as Matabataba said earlier, for kindly compiling the music. To Mawandi Lobi, to Matabataba Khadabi for fingers on the buttons. And from me, Gory Bose Taylor, it's goodbye and good reading. Book Choice was brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we are passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FMR.